I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John, the uh, 5th chapter, and uh, we'll begin reading here in just a moment. And I want to talk this morning a little bit about confidence. Confidence. Are there things that you're really confident about? Maybe. Maybe not. You know, as I get older, I find I'm not as confident in some of the things that I used to be. Uh, I know George, Pastor George, uh, had shared on many occasions that several of us like to ride bikes. Um, I'm a bicycle rider. Uh, and I thought if I bought the most expensive bicycle that I could possibly afford, that would make me a better bicycle rider. Doesn't work that way. Larry knows uh, when he was riding an old beater, uh, I couldn't keep up with him. And now I have a $3,000 bicycle, and he does too, and I still can't keep up with him. But, you know, one of the things that happens as we get older, we lose some confidence in the things that we took for granted on so many occasions. You know, John Wesley said at one time, and, and listen to this very carefully, when I was young, I was sure of everything. But after a few years, having been mistaken a thousand times, I was not half so sure of most of the things as I was before. He goes on to say, and at present, I am hardly sure of anything except what God has revealed to me. You ever feel like that? As I get older, I'm not near as confident in the things that I once was confident in and the things that I thought I knew when I'm proved wrong then I've lost confidence in a lot more things each day. You know, we live in a world of uncertainty. We live in a world that is constantly changing messages, don't we? If, if you pay attention to the news or if you listen to uh, anything written down, uh, I guess you would not listen to that, you would look at it. But if you're looking at uh, reading the news and listening to the news, you find that doctors change their position on many things. You find that our politicians continually change their position on any things, many things, you know, and it has become very confusing, and even the very uh, core things that we hold dear, sometimes people tell us that they don't matter anymore. And if we're not careful, we can lose confidence. We get confusing messages every day in many, uh, many ways. You know, one day coffee's good for you. The next day it's not good for you. One day chocolate's good for you. And I like those days. But then the next day chocolate's not good for you. It just depends. And, you know, I mean, I was going along with that very well for a while. I, I, several years ago, I was seeing a doctor in San Jose, and I was drinking a lot of coffee. And I was having a little problem with uh, some things in my, uh, my, my health. And so I thought very confidently, I walked into the doctor one day, and he said, well, how's it going, Gary? And I said, well, it's going pretty good. And I want to let you know, I've completely quit drinking coffee. And he looked at me and he said, why would you do that? And I said, well, I thought coffee was bad for you. And he said, uh, 10 million Brazilians can't be wrong. <laughs> so we get discouraged sometimes by those things, don't we? The things going on around us. There was an American painter uh, by the name of uh, John Sargent. 
And Jordan Sargent once painted a panel of roses that were highly praised by his critics. It was a small picture, but it really approached perfection. Although offered uh, a high price for it on many occasions, Sargent refused to sell it because he considered it his best work and was very proud of it. And whenever he was deeply discouraged and doubtful of his abilities as an artist, he would go back and look at that painting and remind himself, I painted that. And then his confidence and his ability would come back to him. And part of the reason for that is he had seen evidence of something in his life that he could put his faith in. We live in a confusing world. So the question this morning is, what can we know for sure? What are the things that we can place our confidence in? The Apostle John writes to us about some things that we can know for sure. And and I've asked you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John 5. And we're going to begin reading with the 13th verse. And I'm going to read from the 13th verse to the end of the chapter. And as I read that, I want you to pay uh, particular attention to the, uh, the many times in there that he says, we know. We know. Let's begin reading at the 13th verse. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not uh, lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Then he adds, dear children, keep yourself from idols. What a passage. You know, in this amazing world of confusion and false information that we live in, when scientists are constantly changing their minds and politicians are changing their stances on so many things, John assures us in this passage that there are some things that we can know for certain. Now, this book that I was just reading from, that we call the Holy Bible, that's God's message to us. This is God's very word. So when John says from God, breathe through the Holy Spirit, as he pens this, he says, we know I can take that for his word. 
there are some truths that cannot be denied and will never change. It's not like politicians or not like doctors or not like other things. There are some truths that will never change and some things that we can be sure. And so he mentions five certainties in these little nine verses, and we're going to take a look at those this morning. And if you have on your outline, if you want to write that down, you can do that. But number one, the first one up there, is we can be certain about our promise. We can be certain about our promise. You see, John begins by saying in that 13th verse, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John's writing to Christians here because he says to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to Christians and as a believer in Jesus Christ, we can know that we have that promise of eternal life. I was talking to somebody this week that was struggling with a health issue and I said, you know, the thing that you can be sure of, even though you don't know what tomorrow holds, you know who holds tomorrow. This is God's promise. And you know, I, I say over and over when I teach in my Bible study class or, or sometimes when I'm up here or whatever, I say, how many of the promises, God's promises, do you believe? You have to say all of them. If you believe one of them, you have to believe all of them. If you don't believe one of them, you can't believe in any of them. And so what God is saying here is he says, I write these things to you who believe that you may know you have eternal life. And that's God's promise. You know, John was very prolific in writing about this particular thing, and he says many times in Scripture, in the third chapter, John, he says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. In the fifth chapter of John, in the 24th verse, he says, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And then again, in the sixth chapter, John, in the 40th verse, he says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now my question to you is, believers here that are sitting in this congregation, do you believe that? Amen? Amen. That's God's promise to us. So regardless of what's going on on the outside, regardless of what's going on in your life, the things that are pushing against you, the Goliaths in your life, as we talked about last week, you can be firm in the confidence that you have eternal life through the Son. Christians need never be worried or confused on that issue. You never have to say, I wonder if I'm really saved. When I ask somebody sometimes, I said, what is your, where are you planning on spending eternity? And when somebody says, well, I hope. When somebody asks you, where are you spending eternity as a Christian, you need to say, I know I will spend eternity with the risen Savior. If you're a child of Christ, if you're a child of God, then you can say that with confidence, that I know I have eternal life. Uh, how many of you know the, the gentleman who invented chloroform? Everybody knows that, right? See, that's the fun of being up here. I, I get to find some arcane facts every once in a while. But the man who invented chloroform, his name was Dr. James Simpson. 
And actually, Dr. James Simpson, uh, he was in London, and when he invented chloroform, uh, just prior to that time, people were uh, going through just terrible, terrible events during surgery. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, I go to uh, my dentist, and uh, when they clean my teeth, I'd like to ask them to put me out. You know? But but when this guy, he, he invented chloroform, and when he died, he had such an impact on people's lives that there was 30,000 people at his funeral. And he was on his deathbed, and a friend asked him, Sir, what are your speculations? Okay, they talked a little different in those days than we do. But he said, Sir, what are you thinking about at this time? What do you think's going to happen? What are your speculations? Simpson replied, Speculations? I have no speculations. And then he quoted 2 Timothy. He said, For I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. See, I challenge you to go back and read that verse. It's in 2 Timothy because one of the things we sing that sometimes in a song. But I think we put the emphasis on it. Sir James Simpson knew that he experienced eternal life through the promises of the Savior. So the first truth that we see in the Scripture today is that we can be certain in God's promise of eternal life. The second one, God, uh, John goes on to tell us that we can also be certain about our prayers. Number two, our prayers. And then uh, as we go down, look at verse 15 again. Verse 15 says, And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked for. You know, it's one thing to know that we have eternal life in heaven through Christ Jesus, but what about the needs that we have on a day-to-day basis? That's why John covers that. The second truth of which we can be sure is that God hears, and not only hears, he answers our prayers. We see, the problem with that sometimes, uh, the way we are, the way we're wired, the way we're desired, or we're designed is that we don't always get what we ask for. Do we? Of course not. And that's a good thing. Because God knows what we need better than what we need, what we, we know. I believe there are four different answers that God will give concerning our prayers. First, sometimes God's answer to our prayers is direct. Sometimes we get exactly what we ask for. Sometimes, however, God answers are delayed. Sometimes you pray for something and it doesn't happen for uh, right away, it's delayed. Maybe you start to wonder if God's even listening. But the scripture says that God's hears and he answers. And other times God's answers are different. Have you ever asked for something for God and his answer was completely different? You know why that is? Because he knows what you need better than you need it. I, I've prayed uh, in situations, a lot of times this happens when maybe you're looking for a job, you're looking for a certain situation in life, and God doesn't answer it exactly the way you want it. I know I was really disappointed several years ago in my previous career, I had an opportunity to go in this job, it was the only time that I put in to transfer, and I thought, man, this is mine, 
I could already see the house we were going to live in. I could already see the office that I was going to be involved in. I could, I, this is mine, God, I know you want this for me. He said, no. And shortly after that, God provided me with another situation. And that was exactly what I needed. Because it led me in the direction he wanted me to go. Finally, on occasion, our requests are denied altogether, aren't they? Sometimes you ask God for something and God's answer is no. In those times, we think that God's not listening. But the promise in Scripture says that God hears our prayers. It was just like Paul asked three times to have his thorn in the flesh removed, didn't he? God's answer was no. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. So how can John say we know that God hears us and gives us our request? What is John's formula for prayer that moves the hands of God? Wouldn't it be perfect if we knew exactly how to pray and then we could do that and not cause frustration in our lives when God didn't answer the prayers the way that we wanted them to be answered? John was very specific. If you go back to verse 14, he says here, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So if we pray in line with God's will, you can pray with confidence. I had someone ask me not too long ago, he says, Gary, how can I know God's will for my life? Well, I said, it's a tough one, isn't it? How can I know God's will for my life? Well, you know, most of God's will is laid out in Scripture. To pray effectively, we need to determine what that will is exactly and what is that. Like I said, most of God's will is already found in the pages of Scripture. If God commanded a certain attitude or action, we can be confident that it's how God wants us to live. Think about that. Here's one of the things. Somebody says, I don't know if it's God's will for me to divorce my wife. Look at Scripture. I don't know if it's God's will if I should do this or not. Look at Scripture. And then go back to God and pray. To effectively pray, we have to determine God's will. I go over and over and over this with my Sunday school class, my Bible study class. Folks, you need to be in this every day. This is the way God speaks to you. He speaks to us through his word. We speak to him through our prayers. The promises in here, if we pray those back to God, we're in his will. Because, see, some of the things that we get so involved in is, is they're petty. And they don't count for anything. Keep your eyes on God. Making the prayers found in God's word your own. And then... Number three, our protection. Let's go down to verse 18. Verse 18 says, we know, I love that, we know, we don't speculate, we don't think, we know 
that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. That's a tough verse. It says there, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Whoa. I got a problem with that. Christians sin. In order for us to understand this verse, it's important for us to know what kind of sin John's talking about here. In the previous verse, John says, if anyone sees a brother or sister sinning, sin that does not lead to eternal death, that person should pray, and God will give the sinner life. I'm not talking about people whose sin does not lead to eternal death. Those are doing wrong is always sin, but there's a sin that does not lead to eternal death. Now, what's going to happen after we walk out of here today? Somebody's going to say, Gary, explain that to me. And I'm going to say, go see Pastor Matt. (laughs) Or go see John Bruno. Or go see somebody else. Because I've read so many commentaries about this this week, and one of the things that is uh, central to all of them, they don't know. But the thing that they do know is that In these verses, John is talking to Christians. We know that Christians still sins, and we know when a a brother or sister in Christ sins, we need to pray for them. That's why we need to not forsake the assembling of others. That's why we need to be together as brothers and sisters so we can share the hardships and the burdens, the things that's going on in our life. We fall short just like everybody else, but we have something that the rest of the world doesn't. We have Jesus, and he's our protector. And that's the neat part of that verse. We know it says that God keeps him safe, the one that's born of God, and the evil one cannot harm him. Jesus protects us from Satan, and he protects us from ourselves, keeping us from that dark path that that leads to eternal death doesn't mean, however, that we'll never sin or be tempted to sin. We, we saw in First uh, Peter uh, 5, the 8th verse, as Satan is constantly lurking around the corner, looking like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Satan has many devices for leading a believer into sin, and the biggest one is that he's the father of lies. Satan is no match for Jesus. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And we need to know that and be confident of that and know that regardless of the things that we're going through, that Jesus is our ultimate protection for our ultimate victory. God gives us power to overcome because God will never permit us, as you know, to be tested beyond our strength. Sometimes it feels we are right up at that point. But in Romans, Paul says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loves us. Jesus is our protection. That's a promise. There's a confidence in that. Look at number four. John tells us also that Jesus is our position. John, 1 John 5, 19. Again, he begins with the words, we know. 
We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's kind of an interesting verse, huh? Kind of an interesting place to end. Have you ever really pondered that significance of you being a child of God and all of the benefits that that brings with it? It's not just that we'll uh, spend eternity with our Savior, but it's also that He's protecting us while we're on earth. You know, you hold a precious position. You hold a priceless place in God's eternal family. God wants a family, and He wants you to be in it. Can you imagine that? It's incredible. Some of us were born into families that maybe weren't the greatest families, but now because you have an opportunity to be born again, you can be part of God's family, and with that comes immeasurable benefits. Ephesians, Paul writes again, because of his love, God had already decided to make us his own children through Jesus Christ. That was what he wanted and what pleased him. We're a family of the king. A family of the king. Can you imagine that? When we place our faith in Jesus, God becomes our father. We become his children. Uh, the other believers become our brothers and sisters. And the church becomes our spiritual family. The family of God. And the only way to get into that family is to be born again into it. It's not because who your mother was. It's not because who your father was. It's not because the church that you're event, uh, you've attended all those years. It was because you asked Jesus to come into your heart and to be part of his family. And he says, these are the benefits that I have for you. When you think about it, this may disrupt some people a little bit, but your spiritual family is really more important than your physical family. Because it's going to last forever. And if the members of your physical family are also part of your, phys uh, your spiritual family, you're doubly blessed. You're doubly blessed. Our families on earth are wonderful gifts from God. But they're temporary. And they're fragile. And they're often broken by different things, by divorce, by distance, by uh, growing old and inevitably by death. But on the other hand, our spiritual family, our relationships with others will continue throughout eternity. And that's why you need to look at the people around you and we need to treat everyone that we call a brother or sister in Christ as our loved ones. We need to treat them with the utmost love and look beyond their faults just like Christ did for me and see their needs and deal with them on that level. You know, the other thing, when we were born into that spiritual family, you were given some of the most astounding gifts. You could even call them presents. You were given the family name. We're called Christians. You were given the family likeness, family privileges, the intimate family love and acceptance, and the family inheritance. The Bible says in Galatians 4, 7, and since you are his child, God made you his heir. Everything God owns belongs to you, and you have confidence in that. That's our position. We know 
that we're children of God, and that's a truth that's worth clinging to. Finally, John gives us the last truth in this passage of Scripture. He's our prince. John closes the letter this way. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. What an awesome message that is. We know that Jesus is the one true God. In a time that we live in, when people are trying to point all kinds of other ways, it's okay, they'll say. It's not okay. There's one way. People that do not follow Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, I'm sorry, but they're going to hell. That's not something we say in pulpits very often, but that's the reality. There's one way. Jesus is the true God. It says, if you know the Son, you know the Father. So someone who claims, well, I know who God is, but I'm not sure about Jesus. I think maybe he was a prophet. Then they don't know the Father. Scripture says that. That's not me. First John, John was probably writing to a church in Ephesus. It was a city that was given over to worship of idols. Uh, their commerce had a lot to do with idols. Everything they did was surrounded by idolatry. Christians there were under tremendous pressure to conform. I mean, we look at our life sometimes and we said, we're under tremendous pressure to conform. It's been that way forever. The world would try to mold us into what they are. Of course, the Apostle Paul wrote, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one. In 1 Corinthians. You know, the tragedy of worshiping anything other than the true God is it's a lifeless image. Can do the worshiper no good. Because it's not real, it's not genuine. This says that Jesus is the true God. Hebrew writers in the Old Testament called idols nothings, vain things, vapors, emptiness. An idol itself is a lifeless, useless substitute for the real thing. You know, there's really no... There's no lack of idol worship today. Whether it's something bowed down, something uh, made out of wood or an image, uh, people in an uncultured area. Sometime today, we have gods of false religions. Sometime today, sometimes today, we have gods of the things that we hold more dear than the one true God. Could be your portfolio, could even be your family. It could be your car, it could be your boat, things that are more important to you than who God is, but they will not bring you eternal joy. Their joy is very transitory. But we can be certain and confident that our fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, is genuine. The word true here, or real, means the original as opposed to a copy. The authentic as opposed to to an imitation. Promises are true. 
Jesus is the true Son of God. He's the true light. He's the true bread of life. He's the true vine. Jesus is truth itself. The Bible calls him the Prince of Life or the author of life, Revised Standard Version. And we can know for certain that he's the real thing. You know, like John Wesley that I mentioned earlier, sometimes we've been mistaken a thousand times. As I get older, I'm not nearly as confident or the sure of the things that uh, I was once before. But the truths that we just talked about this morning, I'm confident of those. Because I'm confident in the Scripture. And I'm confident of the promises that God has given me. So beyond any doubt, if you've claimed Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior, then our promise, our prayers, our protection, our position, and our prince are sure. You may have not said, Gary, I, I just can't claim that confidence. Maybe you haven't really taken the time. You maybe think, well, I've been at church. My family were Christians. I serve here. I do different things. But if you have never claimed Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have never gone to your knees and asked him to come into your heart and repented of your sins and claim that he's the one that was raised for your eternal life, you need to do that. You need to do that. Let's bow. Father, I praise you this morning. Father, it scares me every time I step into the pulpit. I want to be faithful to your word. I want to deliver a word, Father, that speaks to your people. And I believe this morning that you've used 1 John to speak to your people. You speak to us every day through your word, Father, and there's the promises that you want us to understand. When we're going through difficult times, when uh, everything around us seems to be falling apart, we can place our confidence in you. Father, we, we don't deserve your love, but you reach down to choose us. Father, I'm so thankful that you did that. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, just, just put our, our egos aside, put our, our uh, worries about the people around us aside and have us just focus just on you this morning, Father. And, and as we sing this song, I pray that, that you'll draw people down front to this altar to pray and to ask for forgiveness or to pray for a loved one or to call upon your name on different situations or to call upon your name to become part of your family. Father, you can work a miracle this morning. We're claiming a miracle in your name. All these things we ask in your precious son's name. Amen. As we sing, stand with us if you would. And if you have a need, share with community. Come and draw and pray. Uh, our deacons just want to come down and pray with you this morning or share with you. Or if you want to be left alone, we'll do that too. But don't leave this place without a need this morning.